Chapter 13 Sleep The Holy Grail Joanna The first god that puts her to sleep, I'll convert. Maz Jobrani, comedian, talking about his four-year-old daughter. Joanna, you keep promising that you're going to talk about sleep, and you keep putting it off. Tony was adamant. Food, oxygen, shelter, sleep. It's one of the basic needs, remember? I had tried as hard as I could to avoid this topic. I wanted to maintain my status as a child whisperer who could solve any problem my workshop participants threw at me. I feared I would come out of this session with my reputation at least slightly tattered. There are no easy answers here. The holy grail of sleep for a parent of young children often requires a grueling quest. I still remember the paralyzing fear I felt as a child, waking up from a nightmare, alone in the dark. I would call out for help, literally too scared to move. My mom or dad would shuffle in and take me to their bed. Ah, the sweet relief from terror, to be safe between their warm bodies. I also have memories of being in the kitchen in the middle of the night, with my mom making me warm milk and honey for my sore throat. It was scary not to be able to swallow without pain, but mommy was there for me with her magic potion to make it better. I wanted to be that parent, to be heroically available to my kids in the deep, lonely darkness of night, to save them from bad dreams and selflessly attend to their sore throats. Once I became a parent myself, I realized that it was, well, complicated. I adjusted my vision of the perfect parent. In my new picture, this flesh-and-blood parent needs sleep of her own to function as that wonderful giving mom of the year. It turns out that I had expected nighttime wakening to be the exception rather than the rule, but somehow my kids didn't get that memo. I discovered that playing the hero on a nightly basis wears thin fast. It doesn't feel so much like heroism as drudgery. Or sleep deprivation torture. Having my sleep disturbed by needy children several times a night, or taking hours to go through the bedtime routine, was destroying my ability to function as a reasonably pleasant person during the day. I would find myself waking up after a night of many sleep interruptions and gazing upon my children's sweet, rosy faces with a resentful eye and a heavy sigh. Unfortunately, there is no one-size-fits-all solution for this problem. There are entire books on the topic, shelves and shelves of them, that give advice ranging from letting children cry it out to maintaining a family bed until the child decides on his own to sleep separately. Some parents worry that their children will feel abandoned if they insist on independent sleeping arrangements. Others have strong feelings about having time to themselves at night. It's not easy to strike a balance between a parent's biological imperative to sleep and a child's desire for unconditional 24-hour service. We wouldn't presume to dictate where you should draw the line. What we can do is share with you what has helped other parents and let you figure out what's right for you. I asked the group for a brainstorm, 
Get out your pens and pencils. We're going to write down what you did with your own children, what you remember your parents doing with you as a child, what your friends or siblings do with their kids. My goal for this session is to create a smorgasbord of bedtime alternatives so that we can all pick and choose the recipes that will work for our own children. What? No handout for this topic? Tony had a dangerous look in her eye. I come here for answers, not questions. I gulped. We are creating the handout now. Future generations will thank us. I passed out paper. The group bent their heads to the task. Fifteen minutes later, people were looking up and ready to share. Here are our results. The stories. Sarah's story. Story of the day. One idea that helps Jake relax at bedtime is to have him get under the covers and then tell him the story of Jake's day. It may not have the same plot twists and illustrations as a regular bedtime storybook, but somehow it helps him let go of the day and relax into sleep. It goes something like this. You had a very long and busy day. At 7 o'clock in the morning, you woke up. You came into the kitchen and asked for a blueberry yogurt. But there was no yogurt. You were a little bit sad. But then you decided to have a bowl of cornflakes and milk instead. A little bit of milk spilled, but Django, that's our dog, was very happy about that and licked it up off the floor. And so on. Jake loves hearing the details of his day so much that he forgets to protest about getting into bed. Julie's story. Back in a minute. When Shiriel was two and a half, she'd climb into bed without protest. But the minute I left, she'd pop back up. She needed water, or she heard a funny sound, or she forgot to tell me something. She wanted me to stay until she fell asleep. I tried. I would impatiently wait for her eyelids to droop. Then I'd do the commando crawl to get out of her room, freezing at the slightest rustle. It was not my concept of an ideal evening activity. I read a book that advises you to insist that your child stay in bed, but you come back to check on them at increasing intervals. Five minutes, then 10 minutes, then 20, and so on. If they cry in between, you're supposed to ignore it. Well. I put my own twist on that one night almost by accident. Shiriel wasn't ready for me to leave, but I had to go to the bathroom. So I told her I'd be gone for just a few minutes, and then I'd come back to check on her. When I got back, I was surprised to see that she was calmly waiting in bed for me. I gave her a little back rub, then told her I needed to finish loading the dishwasher and start it up so that we'd have clean dishes in the morning. But I would be sure to come back to check on her as soon as I was finished, which I did. Then I told her I had to put on my own pajamas and brush my teeth, but I'd come back to check on her after that. By the time I came back, she was asleep. That became our new nightly routine. I'd promised to check on her several times and she'd stay in bed knowing I'd be back. Better yet, she'd fall asleep on her own. A great improvement over waiting for her to drop off and then trying to sneak out, while she resisted sleep as hard as she could so that I wouldn't leave. I think it helped a lot that she could picture what I was doing while I was gone. 
One time, I even said that I had to leave to read a newspaper article on the couch. A previously unthinkable indulgence. Joanna's story. Bad Bunny. When Dan was two, he would get very amped up at bedtime. He clearly did not want the day to end. Sometimes it was enough to read him a story in bed and sing a few lullabies. But at other times, that didn't do the trick. He would deliberately thrash around in the bed, working himself out of a sleepy mood. I was pretty cranky by that time of night and would tell him he had to lie still and relax and let himself get sleepy. That never worked. It took me a while to realize that playfulness would help here. I was not in the mood, but I was desperate enough to try. Dan had a stuffed animal, a little bunny we called Peter Rabbit. I tucked Peter Rabbit in beside Danny, snuggled under his chin, then I made Peter wiggle and jump up and push off the covers. I sternly scolded the bunny. Now, Peter, it's time for bed. You can jump around in the morning. Peter wiggled out of the covers again. Peter, Danny needs his sleep. Stop that right now. You must stop disturbing my son or he will be too tired to play tomorrow. Danny, can you help me tuck Peter in nice and snug and tight? And so on. Dan was highly amused by this drama and would help me tuck Peter in and calm him down with a tight hug. He got to be the parent figure in charge of a troublesome little hyperactive creature. I think it helped him relieve some of his own stress over making that difficult transition into slumber. Anna's story. Lumpy bed. If I can get Anton into his bed in the first place, that's half the battle. Once he's under the covers, he relaxes pretty easily with stories and songs. We have a game for this. I say, I have to make the bed. I hope it's not lumpy tonight. Then Anton gets in, and I start smoothing down the covers, complaining about all the lumps. I say, I don't know how this bed got so lumpy. Every time I try to make it nice and smooth, it bumps up again. I'm going to have to write an email to the mattress company and complain. I'm going to try one more time. I've got to smooth out this long, skinny lump here. I press him down all over his body, and he snuggles in. He likes the joke, but he also likes the pressure. I've read that physical pressure helps kids who have sensory issues to relax, and it seems to work for us. Tony's story. A bath by any other name. This isn't exactly about sleep, but it's about the bedtime routine. I insist the twins take a bath every evening. If you saw how they eat dinner, sticking their hands in their hair between bites, you'd understand. There's a reason I don't serve fish very often. Anyway, they're usually very resistant to bath time because they know it's the first step to the end of all fun. And I get very cranky because I know it's only the first step, and I have such a long road ahead before I can rest. Last week, my mother was visiting, and she offered to bathe the kids. Jenna immediately said, no bath. I reminded her that she had wiped mango juice in her hair at snack time, but she wasn't impressed. Then Grandma said, oh no, of course no bath. There will be no bath under any circumstances. Tonight, we're having a slath.
I got into the spirit and said, Do you hear that voice? I think it's your bathtub. I used my high-pitched, sad bathtub voice. I'm so lonely up here. No one has been in me all day. I miss Jenna and Ella. The girls scampered upstairs and took off their clothes. When the bath was full, they started to climb in, but their grandma said, Oh, no, you don't get into a slath the same way as a bath. You have to get in backward. So the girls turned around and backed in. I used my bathtub voice again. I feel so much better. It's nice to have you to play with. Thank you. Jenna said, you're welcome. They washed from head to toe, got out, put their jammies on, and climbed into bed. What a lovely night. Michael's story. Picnic breakfast. In our family, we have a problem at the other end of the night. Jamie likes to get up early. Really early. Jan and I have begged him not to come in and wake us up before he sees the seven on the digital clock. We cover up the minutes to make it easier for him. Is that asking so much? But he comes in anyway and climbs around on top of us while we try to ignore him. Jamie always says he's hungry. I figured he's just trying for attention. Who can be hungry at five o'clock in the morning? Last Friday evening, Jan had an inspiration. She asked Jamie if he wanted a special picnic breakfast. She set out a bowl for him and let him pick the cereal. We put the cereal in a small container. We also filled a sippy cup with milk and put it on the bottom shelf of the fridge. Jamie was ecstatic. The next morning, he got up and had breakfast on his own, then went to play with his Legos until 7 o'clock. The table was a little messy, but between mess and sleep, there is no contest. Now we do it every day. Joanna Story The Power of Music When I was a little girl, I got a child's record player for my birthday. It was one of the best presents ever. Every night I would choose a record. Sometimes it was music. Some of my favorites were Tom Glazer's On Top of Spaghetti, Pete Seeger's Children's Concert at Town Hall, and another cherished album called For Kids and Just Plain Folks, which included the all-time great song that tickled my funny bone as a kid, Be Kind to Your Parents. Sometimes it was a record of stories for children. I would drift to sleep listening to those words and melodies. They took my mind off my particular worries, that the shadows were monsters, a robber might come into the house, and a fire could come blazing down the hallway. To this day, my brother and I can recite lines word for word from those recordings. Maria's story, Monster Dust. Benjamin gets scared at night. I've learned that even the most innocent things can set him off. His favorite space book has a page about black holes, which he obsessed about at bedtime for weeks. We don't read that book at night anymore. Last week, we let him watch a movie about a little mouse who goes west. In one scene, the mouse runs toward his parents in the desert. But when he gets close, it turns out they're a mirage and they disappear. Oh, do I regret that movie. Benjamin didn't sleep on his own for the next three nights for fear we would disappear. But even without science books and G-rated movies, we still have monster problems. 
We've made monster repellent out of cornstarch and glitter. We put it in a spice jar and sprinkle it in a line across the doorway for protection. When that idea wore out, we made monster spray out of water with a few drops of lavender oil mixed in. I also got him a feather duster to sweep the monsters out from under the bed. One time my husband helped him build a wall of imaginary bricks around the bed to protect it. We even rearranged the furniture, and that helped a lot, although I have no idea why. We have to keep changing it up, but the main idea is that part of the bedtime routine involves monster management. I used to tell him that monsters don't exist, and he would say, I know, but I'm still scared of them. It works better to take his worries seriously. It's more comforting because it makes him feel like we're on the same team, a monster management team. I was pretty excited. We had produced a rich stew of ideas, but there's no telling whether any of them will work for any particular child. Problem solving is a useful tool if none of these prepackaged ideas do the trick. Here's how it might go. Step zero. Find a peaceful time to talk with your child, not at bedtime. Step number one. Acknowledge feelings. It's not easy to get used to sleeping by yourself. You really like having us lie down with you until you fall asleep. Even though part of you knows that mommy needs to sleep, it's really, really hard to resist waking her up. It's no fun to be the only one awake in the night. It can be scary to lie alone in the dark. See if your child will talk about how she feels. Reflect back what she says. Oh, so your toys can look like monsters in the dark. If she doesn't want to talk, you might tell a story about how you were afraid of the dark when you were little. It could be comforting for her to know that her parents had such fears, too. Step number two. Describe the problem, briefly. This is a really tough problem. You don't like to be alone when you wake up at night, and Mommy and Daddy need to sleep in their own bed so they can have energy in the morning. Step number three. Ask for ideas. We need ideas. What can a person do in a situation like this? What helps put you in a sleepy mood? What can you do when you wake up and have trouble going back to sleep? Write down all ideas without judgment, even the most outrageous ones. Buy a pet monkey to sleep with me. In case you need help getting your creative juices flowing, here are some suggestions that other parents have used successfully. Keep a picture book of vehicles by the bed to look through. Make a special recording of favorite songs or stories she can listen to in bed. Get a special doll or stuffed animal to cuddle. Acquire a nightlight to stave off fears of the dark. Rearrange sleeping accommodations so that the child shares a room with a sibling at night. Make three get-out-of-bed cards for when she really, really needs you so she doesn't feel stuck. She can help make them. Make a recording of mom or dad reading a story to her so she can hear your actual voice when she's alone in bed. Make a list of special activities that your child can do on her own in the morning before you wake up. Make a special supply box for the activities. 
Hang a two-sided sign on your door that she helps make. Sleeping parents on one side and come in on the other. There is one very significant caveat to this whole problem-solving process when it comes to the epic bedtime battle. In my experience, no matter how creative you are, it is extremely difficult to compete with the powerful draw of a cozy, parent-filled bed. You may very well find that your child will be willing to consider problem-solving alternatives only if the primary prize is off the table. If you are truly dedicated to defending your sleep space, you may have to draw a firm line in the sand and take action to let your child know you mean business. It is likely that tears will be shed. That's a deal breaker for many of our workshop parents. They prefer to come up with some kind of compromise, such as getting a bigger bed, adding a sidecar to the parental bed, or providing a small mattress on the floor of a parent's bedroom for nighttime wanderers. If you are comfortable with those solutions, more power to you. For me, those compromises felt like too much of a sacrifice. I treasured the few hours at night that I was not on duty. So did my husband. Once my children got past the baby stage and were able to make it through the night without nursing, I was ready to reclaim my bed. One motivator was that my firstborn took the classic H position at night, head toward one parent and feet toward the other, and energetically kicked his way through his dreams. I was waking up in the morning feeling grumpy and resentful. It wasn't good for my sanity, and it wasn't good for my relationship with my children either. If you crave a child-free space at night, please don't feel guilty. We believe that the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness includes the pursuit of a good night's sleep. The mother and fathership must survive if the crew is to thrive. Think of it as giving your children the gift of a well-rested parent and protecting them from the dangers of the zombie caretaker. We're not suggesting that any parent can expect a perfect night's sleep 365 days a year but it is possible to create an environment where night duty is the exception rather than the rule. Here's what taking action without insult might look like at night. The Stories Sarah's Story Parents Have Feelings Too I can't bear the thought of letting my children cry it out but I have learned to act a little more displeased at having my sleep interrupted. I used to lead Mia back to bed and go through the whole tucking in, cuddling, and singing rigmarole each time. That led to endless wake-up calls. I finally started expressing my feelings strongly. Mommy needs to sleep. I don't like waking up in the night. At night, we stay in our own beds. I put her back in gave a brief smoothing of the covers, and went back to my own bed quickly. The other thing I stopped doing was letting her crawl into bed with me in the middle of the night and stay there. I used to complain, but not actually move to evict her. My sleepy brain tells me to avoid getting up at all costs, but I can't get a restful sleep with her wriggling around next to me. In the long run, 
it's worth it to get up and put her back in her own bed. After a week of forcing myself to get up and lead her back to bed, she stopped coming in, most of the time. Joanna's Story A Dark, Dark Night Three-year-old Danny was in a playful mood. He figured out that getting up again and again after bedtime was a pretty good game. No matter how firmly I spoke to him, he popped up again five or ten minutes later, giggling. After the fourth time, I realized that it was going to be a very long night unless I changed my tactics. The fifth time, he popped up to find himself in a decidedly non-fun environment. The house was dark. The door to his parents' bedroom was locked. He cried and pounded on the door. I yelled through the closed door in a grumpy voice. I need to sleep, he yelled back. Let me in. No, I'm tired. I need to sleep. He cried harder. I called out. You run back to your bed and I'll come tuck you in. Dan ran back to his bed. I got up and tucked him in. I sympathized briefly. It's not easy to stay in bed at night. The problem is, I have to sleep. We'll play tomorrow. I opened the doors between our bedrooms again. Peace reigned in the kingdom for the rest of the night. Not all crying is harmful. In fact, if we manage to protect our kids from every occasion that might cause tears, they probably wouldn't be emotionally healthy. Getting through hard times with the support and empathy of parents can make a child stronger. Sometimes our role is to provide sympathy without giving in to a child's demand, whether that demand is to have candy for breakfast or to keep a parent up all night. Neither one is healthy. Many parents have found that they have to go through a painful period of standing their ground before problem-solving and other methods work for them. Make no mistake, shared problem-solving is still meaningful. You can take heart in the conviction that by problem-solving, you are asking your child to participate in conquering a very difficult challenge, rather than arbitrarily abandoning him to weep in the dark. And then there are those times it seems best to gracefully give in, at least temporarily. Michael's story, all together now. When Kara was born, Jamie was just barely two years old. He'd been sleeping in his own room, but after Kara arrived, he started having night fears. He wasn't so happy about having a new baby sister. As much as we tried to reassure him, it was true that he was getting less attention. Here was this noisy little invader in mommy's arms. And that was just during the day. At night, the three of us, Mom, Dad, and Kara, were in one room, and Jamie was all by himself in another, like an outcast, banished from the rest of the family. It was no use explaining that he had shared our bed when he was a baby. That was ancient history to him. We didn't try any of these other techniques because we didn't know about that back then. So I can't say if they would have helped. What we did do was to put a mattress on our floor so that he could come and sleep in our bedroom. When Kara was six months old, we moved her into Jamie's room, got Jamie a new grown-up bed, put up mobiles and posters of dogs and fish and trucks, and generally made a big deal about them having their own special room together. 
Two kids in one room and two parents in the other. Nobody was alone. At that point, Jamie was ready for it. And even though he still sometimes resented his sister during the day, he liked having her there with him at night. Reminder. Sleep. Number one. Acknowledge feelings. Sometimes it isn't easy to fall asleep. It can be scary to lie in bed in the dark. Number two, be playful. I need to smooth out these terrible lumps in your bed. Press down on legs and arms of child. Number three, try problem solving. Let's see what ideas we can come up with for staying in your bed at night. A special nightlight? A picture book by your bed? A recording of songs or stories? Number four, take action without insult. Mommy and Daddy need to sleep. I'm putting you back in your bed. We'll play in the morning. Chapter 14. When Parents Get Angry. Julie. You can learn many things from children. How much patience you have, for instance. Franklin P. Jones. The truth is, I'm having my doubts about this whole approach. Anna began. It's not that I don't believe these tools are worthwhile, but I'm never going to be able to remember to use them in the moment. When I get really angry at Anton, all I want to do is smack him. I don't even want to try to think of a tool from the workshop. I just don't care. I'm sorry. But I don't have the right temperament to stay calm enough to do this. Anna slumped in her seat. Don't be sorry, Anna. Maria looked down as she spoke. I've been thinking the same thing. The other day, I was so furious at Benjamin for intentionally kicking Isabel. I screamed at him. What is wrong with you? How can you be so hateful? I don't care what she did to you. I don't want to hear it. Get out of my sight. I don't even want to be your mother anymore. I'm too embarrassed to tell you any more details. I am reminded of a refresher meeting of my first long-term group. We always went around the room with a five-minute check-in about how we were doing. When it was my turn, I shared with the group how furious I was with Asher. He had been such a horror that morning, mercilessly teasing his brother that I was ready to give him away. Did anyone want an extra five-year-old? I worried the group might lose faith in me after my confession. Instead, they were relieved to hear I was human. They had imagined that I was infinitely patient and never got angry with my kids. That day, I discovered a common misperception about this approach. Parents assume they should be able to remain calm and in control at all times. I have yet to meet a parent who fits that description. And I'm not sure I even want to meet a parent who fits that description. That person would be an automaton, not a real human being. Anna and Maria, thank you for sharing your dark feelings. The reality is that normal, loving parents get angry at their kids, even downright rageful. Let's go back to the foundation of this approach. All feelings can be accepted. Some actions must be limited. That truth must apply to us as well as to our kids. The challenge is to notice and accept our own violent feelings and at the same time limit our actions so we do no harm. Or if we do cause harm, the challenge is to reconnect with our children once we've recovered. Maria ventured. 
I've read that you're supposed to take deep breaths or count to ten or do jumping jacks when you get really mad at your kids. Those things are probably helpful. But the idea that I should try to calm myself down when I'm angry makes me feel irritable. When I get mad, I don't want to calm down. It can actually be confusing for children to have their parents talk to them calmly when the kids can tell that they're furious. Talk about mixed messages. When I'm angry, my voice gets loud. Fortunately for me, there are plenty of great ways to be loud without doing psychological damage. Stick with the tools. This is where they really come in handy. Say it with a word. When I'm driven into a frenzy by dawdling kids, and my gentler tools of playfulness and offering choices to get them into the car have failed, I yell, CAR! with all my frustration packed into that word. Chances are the word car, even delivered at top volume, will not cause lasting damage to the psyche. If one word is not enough, you can direct your fury into giving information. You can roar, Brothers are not for kicking! You can express your feelings strongly. Use the word I instead of you. I get very upset when I see a baby being pinched. You can describe what you see. I see people getting hurt. You can take action. I can't allow sand throwing. We are leaving. None of these words wound. They don't tell a child he is mean or worthless or unloved. They do let him know that his parent is past all patience. And they model a healthy way to express anger and frustration without attack. Of course, being yelled at by a furious parent can be an upsetting experience in itself. That can't be the end of the story. It's important to reconnect after the intensity of anger has abated. Our kids need to know there is a way back into our good graces and a better way to go forward. That can start with acknowledging feelings all around. That was no fun. You didn't like getting yelled at. And I was really mad about, insert your gripe here. Then you can go on to plan what to do next time or help your child make amends. A problem-solving session on how to get out of the house in the morning may be helpful. He can make amends to his brother by finding a colorful Band-Aid to place on the hurt spot. He may need to talk about what makes him mad at the baby. It's all part of the valuable work of growing up, learning what makes people angry, learning what to do afterward. An angry parent provides crucial feedback in the art of human relations. Don't you think you can overdo it, though? I don't think a lot of yelling is good for the kids, no matter what the words are, Maria said. My mother was a yeller. It felt like we were living with a ticking time bomb. My brother and I were always tiptoeing around in fear of her next explosion. I had to agree. People do get angry. People do blow up. And the how-to-talk tools offer a safer way to release the pressure. But if you feel like you're losing control of yourself, if the kids are getting scared by your frequent outbursts, then it may be a good idea to get outside support. There's no shame in finding a therapist or counselor who can help you figure out alternative ways to relieve your stress. You'll be doing right by yourself and your children. Anna nodded. Okay, but before we all go into therapy, can we take a few minutes to share what people in this group do when we feel like we're heading for an explosion? I wouldn't mind a few free tips. I yell, 
I feel like hitting. You better get out of here, Tony said. Later, I call my sister and tell her about it. She'll commiserate with me, tell me her kids are at least as bad as mine. You might think I could just talk to my husband, but he's one of those guys who's always trying to make suggestions and fix the situation. I'm not ready for that. My sister, she'll let me rant. I do the same for her. Maria spoke next. If my husband is home, I go for a run around the block. Two or three if I'm really in a rage. There's something about fresh air and being able to move that helps calm me down. I wish I had a partner to take over for me once in a while, Anna said. I can't leave the kids alone and go for a walk. I lock myself in the bathroom and curse under my breath. The kids bang on the door and beg me to come out. At least I know they're safe, but the door does take a beating. After my third kid was born, there was a period where I was irritated and overwhelmed all the time, Sarah said. I finally went to a therapist. It helped me get some insight into what was setting me off. I still get mad, of course, but I don't feel like it's out of control, and there are plenty of good times in between. Coming to this group has really helped me, too. Sometimes, when one of my kids does something awful, I'll think to myself, I can't wait to tell the group about this. It's nice to know you guys will get it. I know we're going to end up laughing about it. Michael cleared his throat. I have to admit that I tend to lose my temper if I haven't gotten enough sleep or if I get too hungry. When I say it out loud, it sounds pretty obvious, but it's so easy to stay up late to do one more thing. And I'm like that with food, too. Sometimes I don't notice I'm hungry until I'm literally growling at the kids. Thanks for making that point, Michael. Sometimes we're so focused on managing the kids, we forget to take care of ourselves. Like they say on the airplanes, in an emergency, put on your own oxygen mask first before helping others. Self-sacrifice is not useful here. On that note, let's wrap this up so we can all go home and get some food and sleep. The Stories Joanna's Story You Had to Be There When my mother and her co-author finished writing Liberated Parents, Liberated Children, she sent a copy to an author whom she greatly admired. He was an observant and creative teacher of children who had written several deeply moving books about his experiences. He responded that he could not recommend her book. He was appalled by the description of parental anger toward their precious young charges. He had spent a lifetime working with children, some of them very troubled with difficult behavior problems. He could neither imagine nor excuse such violent feelings toward helpless, innocent children. In all of my parenting workshops, when loving, caring, dedicated parents read that section on anger, they come alive. I loved that chapter. It made me feel so much better about myself. It was the most helpful thing I've ever read in a parenting book. I've never once heard a parent who was shocked by the depiction of parental rage in liberated parents, liberated children. This author was not a parent himself. 
I can only conclude that you have to have experienced the intense and relentless frustration of being in charge of these precious, sweet, unruly, and infuriating little beings 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to truly understand the anger an otherwise loving parent can feel. Joanna's Story A Mountain of Trouble it was a bitterly cold winter day, and I was stuck indoors trying to entertain two-and-a-half-year-old Dan and six-month-old Sam in the living room. Dan was determined to conquer a mountain. If the mountain would not come to Dan, Dan must create his own. He dragged his rocking horse into the living room and hoisted it up on top of the coffee table. He went into his bedroom and dragged out his toddler chair. He reached up and managed to get the chair on top of the horse, balanced on three of the four legs. Then he started to climb. I grabbed his arm as the whole crazy structure teetered and wobbled. Dan determinedly wrenched himself away from me and headed back up to his homemade summit. No skills came to mind. I didn't accept feelings, give choices, or give him his wishes in fantasy. I simply reacted in alarm. No, no, no! Then I grabbed the chair and horse, undoing his grand design. Dan was outraged. He cried and kicked me, making a solid connection with my shin. Ow! Now, I was outraged. I grabbed him hard and held him at arm's length, yelling, Hey, no kicking, that hurts! He yelled back, stop it, and continued to struggle and kick. I shouted furiously, I won't let you hurt me. I disentangled myself from Dan, picked up the baby who was now crying too, and stormed into my bedroom, locking the door behind me. Dan was frantic. He kicked at the door and screamed, let me in, let me in. No, I won't. I don't want to be kicked. Let me in, let me in, let me in, I won't kick you. Okay, I'll let you in if you don't kick me. I opened the door and Dan fell into my arms, sobbing. The baby was still crying. We all got into bed together. Dan snuggled up to me and put his arm around baby Sam. Everybody t yying, he snuffled. Yes, everybody's crying, I agreed. We pulled the covers up to our necks and snuggled. We were cozy together in our sadness. After a little while, we got up and went to get a snack. There was conflict, there was violence, a child struck out. A mother protected herself and loudly insisted on her rights without striking back. The family reconnected and loving feelings returned. Soon we'll have to talk about how much fun it is to climb and we'll figure out some safer challenges for Dan. That's life with little kids. Kicking and screaming is part of the territory. Julie's story. Road rage. I got the call that my grandmother passed away in the afternoon, but I couldn't get a flight out to the East Coast for the funeral until the next day. I didn't have the heart for cooking dinner, so I decided to take the kids out for pizza. 
But the car ride turned into a nightmare. Rashi whined that he wanted to listen to Raffi. Asher told him that Raffi is for babies. Rashi insisted, I'm not a baby. Asher said, yes, you are a baby. You listen to baby music. They went back and forth. Rashi started to cry, and my feeble, hey, hey, had no effect. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't draw up a single tool. I was paralyzed by grief and furious with Asher for taunting Rashi. I parked the car, and Asher decided to climb into the front seat and search my glove compartment for more mature music. I felt a sudden overwhelming urge to slam the glove compartment on Asher's little fingers. I caught myself in time, but the feeling of wanting to hurt him was so powerful it scared me. I learned from that day. When extremely upset, don't get in the car with little kids and drive them around for pizza. Take care of your own emotional needs if you can. In retrospect, I should have said, kids, I'm very sad tonight. I can't go driving. It's cereal and milk for dinner. Reminder. When parents get angry. A. In the moment, if you must yell, use your tools loudly. 1. Say it in a word. Car! 2. Give information. Brothers are not for kicking! 3. Describe how you feel. I get very upset when I see a baby being pinched. 4. Describe what you see. I see people getting hurt. 5. Take action without insult. I can't allow sand throwing. We are leaving. B. When the moment has passed and everyone's safe, take care of yourself. Do whatever works best for you. Run around the block. Take deep breaths. Take a time out for yourself. Lock yourself in another room. Call a friend and vent. Email a friend. Write in a journal. Hug a dog. Turn on your favorite music. Attend to your own basic needs. Sleep and food. C. Reconnect and try problem solving. That was no fun. You didn't like getting yelled at, and I was really mad about being late. What can we do next time? D. Seek help if you feel the anger is too much. Chapter 15. Troubleshooting. When the tools don't work. Joanna. I hope you won't take this the wrong way. Tony started. But sometimes these tools just don't work for me. Maybe my kids are more strong-willed than yours, or I'm not patient enough, but I thought if I used these tools, I could get my kids to listen. Your examples and stories all sound very sweet and amazing, but real life doesn't always have a happy ending, at least not in my family. Take the other day, for example. Jenna wanted to go to her friend Megan's house. I had to pick up Thomas from soccer practice and then make dinner, I just didn't have time. I was sympathetic, at least at first. I offered her a choice. You can play at Megan's tomorrow or this Saturday. She started crying. It has to be today. You have to take me. I gave her information. I have to pick up Thomas and make dinner. 
I don't have time to take you to Megan's and back. I tried putting her in charge. What do you want to do instead? Nothing helped. If anything, I was making it worse. Finally, I couldn't take any more whining and weeping, so I put her in her room and shut the door. It's frustrating when you go out of your way to respond to a distressed child with skill and caring, and it doesn't help. It can make you doubt yourself or doubt the whole approach. What's the point of all this if it doesn't lead to cooperative kids? When engaging cooperation tools don't work. When I find myself hitting a wall, my mantra is, when in doubt, go back to acknowledging feelings. You might try saying, this is terrible. You don't want to go to Megan's house another day. You want to go right now. I wish I could take you. There's no guarantee that the storm clouds will lift immediately. This disappointment might be the last straw in a pile of frustrations that have built up over the day. She might need to stomp around or sob on your shoulder before she can finally let go of it. Tony sighed. It's true. I didn't think to acknowledge what she wanted in words. I thought that by giving her information and offering a choice and trying to problem solve, I did acknowledge what she wanted. This is too hard. I'll never get it right. Hey, I said, you got a lot right. You didn't add insult to injury. You also didn't cave in and teach her that she could get what she wanted by whining. You held your ground. I can guarantee you'll get another chance to practice acknowledging feelings when the cooperation tools aren't working. When empathy seems to make a child feel worse. But what about when you empathize with a child and even that makes things worse? Sarah asked. The teacher told me Sophia had a conflict at school. When I picked her up, I said, I heard you and Janelle had a fight. Her eyes teared up. I said, that can be so upsetting. And she started to cry. She told me Janelle wouldn't sit with her at lunch or let her play dress up with the other girls. The more I said things like, oh, wow, that's so hard. And that didn't feel good. That's not what you expect from a friend. The more she sobbed, I eventually had to leave her crying by herself so I could start dinner. Sometimes it can seem as if you made a child feel worse by naming her painful feelings. What's going on? Let's try it on ourselves, I suggested. Imagine that your grandmother died last week. The two of you were very close. You try to put it out of your mind and hold yourself together so you can function at work. Then you run into a dear friend who says, I was so sorry to hear about your grandmother. You two had such a special relationship. You feel your defenses start to crumble and your eyes well up. Your friend gives you a hug and says, you miss her. The tears spill over and you start to cry. Did what she said make you feel worse? I think I'd feel better to finally let the sadness out, Sarah said, and to have somebody know how I feel. What if after a few minutes your friend said to you, well, she was old, you can't be sad all night, you have to get over it, so let's go bowling. Everyone groaned. Okay, I get it, Sarah said. 
just because we say the right thing to our children doesn't mean they're going to cheer up on our timeline. It's stressful to have a sad kid. I guess it's hard to accept that we can't instantly heal every wound. Tony looked skeptical. So you're saying we have to keep empathizing for hours and hours until they're ready to move on? That's exactly what I don't have patience for, especially since we're usually talking about missed play dates, not dead grandmothers. If your patience runs thin or you run out of time, you can take care of your own needs without blaming the child. Instead of, come on now, that's enough crying, this isn't so terrible, you can say, I see how sad you are. I need to start making dinner now. Come to the kitchen and keep me company when you feel like it. When a child gets mad at you for naming his feelings. But what about when your child actually gets mad at you for accepting his feelings? Anna asked. I'll give you an example. Anton has a love-hate relationship with Legos. He adores them, but his fine motor control is not very good, so he can get enormously frustrated. He moans and cries and throws things when something he's been working on falls apart. If I try to acknowledge his feelings by saying something like, that is so frustrating, or you look mad, he gets enraged with me. He'll actually yell, don't say that. It's like I'm rubbing salt in his wounds. He doesn't want to talk about feelings. When acknowledging feelings isn't helping, here are a few things to check. Are you matching the emotion with your tone of voice, or are you just phoning it in? No child, or adult for that matter, wants to hear a calm, syrupy sing-song, Oh, you are frustrated, when he's extremely agitated. You have to say it like you mean it. That's so frustrating. And don't forget, you're not limited to simply labeling the feeling. There are other ways to let a child know that you're getting it. A sympathetic grunt can be comforting. Ugh. Mmm. If that's not enough, you can put a child's thoughts into words. Stupid Legos. Someone should invent bricks that will actually stick together when you put them together. You didn't want that to happen. Sometimes it helps to tell the story of what happened. You worked hard on that. You almost had it. You got all the big blue bricks together to make the base, and all the little red bricks for the lights. And you put the alien with a laser on the top. It was almost ready to fly to Mars. And then it exploded. Darn it. And sometimes the best approach is to say nothing. There are times when children prefer to be left alone, without any interference at all, even when they're struggling. Children, and adults, don't always appreciate a running commentary about how they're feeling. Keep in mind that kids will cry, tempers will fly, as will toys and juice cups. We can't shield our children from all distress, nor should we. They can't learn how to handle adversity without wrestling with it a bit. When a child needs help climbing out of a pit of despair, Okay, but 
what about when the histrionics are truly out of proportion to the problem? Tony asked. Aren't we in danger of encouraging a child to wallow in self-pity? What will happen to a kid out in the real world if she's used to endless sympathy at home? She's not going to get that from a teacher with 25 kids in a class. I can relate to that, I said. I worried about that very problem with my second child. The thing is, what seems like a minor inconvenience to us can feel like a monumental disappointment to a kid. We can't simply talk them out of their feelings or explain them down to smaller proportions. But there are other ways to help a child climb out of his pit of despair. Let me tell you about Dan and Sam. A Tale of Two Brothers My firstborn son would cheer up almost immediately when his feelings were acknowledged. He fell off the swing, banged his head, and broke the plow off his precious tractor that he was holding in his hand, probably the reason he fell in the first place. Oh dear, that hurts. Let's give your head a kiss. Poor little broken tractor, it'll need some glue. The tears instantly dry, the clouds clear, and the sun shines again. Dan is on to the next misadventure. In contrast, my second son often needed help to change gears. Sam would cry so long and so hard when he got hurt that I used to worry about what would happen when he went off to school. What teacher would have the patience for his particular extended timeline of misery? I remember once when Sam scraped his knee and cried for such a long time, I wondered if he had broken a bone. But knowing Sam, I decided to wait it out. Finally, he seemed ready to move on. He said he was hungry and happily munched on the apple I offered. Five minutes later, he looked down at his knee and started crying anew. I was exasperated. Sam, you don't have to keep crying when it doesn't hurt anymore. Sam was outraged. He mustered all the scorn a misunderstood three-year-old can muster and replied, Just because it doesn't hurt doesn't mean I can stop crying. One thing I learned from having a child who held on to both physical and emotional pain was that it isn't always enough to just acknowledge feelings. You may have to carve some steps into the sidewall of that pit they're in so that they can see a way to climb out. Let me give you a special kiss. You can add your own kiss if you want to. Sam liked getting involved in the healing. Which band-aid should we put on it? The plain one or the one with a dinosaur? It sure is a good thing that our skin knows how to fix itself. Your body is busy making new skin cells to patch up that scrape. How long do you think it will take to completely heal? Three days? Four? This mixture of kisses, choices, and information helped Sam see his way back to good cheer. And by the time he went off to kindergarten, to my relief, he was able to do it for himself. But before he did, there were plenty more occasions for me to hone my tools for the despairing child. Popcorn on the Pavement On another tragic occasion, Sam spilled his popcorn on the pavement of the parking lot as he was getting into the car. I gave him the classic response, 
Oh, how disappointing. You were looking forward to eating that. You didn't want that to happen. Sam sobbed harder. I tried to engage him in a conversation about what snacks we should make when we got home. He was not interested in considering any replacement for his terrible loss. Finally, I ventured, well, this is really sad and annoying for you, but I know someone who is actually very happy about that spilled popcorn. Sam's curiosity got the better of him. Who? He demanded. There is a squirrel who is extremely excited to see all that free popcorn. Right now, he's probably running to tell his family and friends the good news, and they're all going to have a big party with that popcorn. Maybe they'll invite the chipmunks, too. Bad for us, but good for them. Sam smiled to think of the squirrel party. Bad for us, but good for them, he repeated emphatically. Sam has grown up to be a philosophical young man with a fine appreciation of life's ironies. I can't help but think it may have started with the squirrels. Okay, I get it, Tony said. Sometimes my problem is I'm using the wrong tool, and sometimes I need to be more patient with the tools I have. But aren't there times when these tools just plain aren't going to work? It would be nice if we had a tool that was guaranteed to swiftly convert misery to cheer, no matter what the circumstance. But we would win a Nobel Peace Prize. How's that for giving in fantasy what I can't give in reality? But we may lose something along the way. Kids are not programmable robots. Before they can grow up to be kind, thoughtful, self-directed beings, they're going to have to learn how to manage a range of emotions and experiences, including great sadness and disappointment. That's bound to include some wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's all part of being human. The Stories Maria's Story Bathroom Boycott I was getting my kids ready for bed the other night. Sometimes Benjamin resists going to the bathroom. Either he wakes me up in the middle of the night, which I don't appreciate, or else he doesn't and we have a mess to clean up in the morning. I decided to offer him a choice. Do you want to use the hall bathroom or the one in my bedroom? His response? No, I am not going to the bathroom. I tried a different choice, along with some information. Benjamin, you have to pee before you go to bed so the sheets don't get wet during the night. Do you want to go alone, or do you want me to come in with you? I am not going to the bathroom ever again! Wow. I used my tools, and the problem got worse. This was looking a lot like failure. Then I thought, there must be something else going on. I remembered that when in doubt, we're supposed to go back to acknowledging feelings, but I didn't know what those feelings were. I said to Benjamin, there's something about going to the bathroom tonight that you really don't like. In response, he stuck out his arms to show me his new dinosaur tattoos. He looked very sad and said, I don't want them to wash off. So that was it. Oh, I see. They're very special to you. How about we wrap your arms with towels while you wash your hands so your tattoos won't get wet? 
He liked that plan and happily went to use the bathroom. Michael's story. Camp Nostalgia. Sunday night, I told Jamie that he'd be starting a new camp in the morning. He started screaming and crying. Instead of trying to convince him that it would be great, which is what I usually would have done, I just kept reflecting his feelings for what seemed like forever. Me. You don't like that idea. You don't want to start a new camp. Jamie. No, I'm not going. Me. You wish you could go back to adventure camp. You loved that camp. That was his old camp, which he really loved, but it was over. Jamie. Yeah. Me. I bet you wish you could go to adventure camp forever and ever. They should never have closed that camp. Jamie. Yeah. They should have it for the whole summer. At this point, he was still crying, and he climbed into my lap. Me. And then you would never have to go to a new camp. You would always know what to expect, and you would always have a great time. And you would always have Tom for a counselor. Jamie. And Andy would be there, too. Me. It can feel scary going to a new camp. You don't know who's going to be there. You don't know what to expect. Jamie. Crying. Nods his head. Mm Mm-hmm. After 20 minutes of this, I really wanted to say, Okay, now you're done. It certainly seemed like the more I accepted his feelings, the more he would cry. But I stuck with it. Mostly so I could tell you it didn't work. After about half an hour, he said, Okay, I don't want to talk about this anymore. He didn't seem to feel better, just tired. But the next day, when we got to his new camp, he ran off with his counselor as soon as we got there. I guess he really just needed to have a good cry about his favorite camp ending. Joanna's story. Candy Clamor. As the youngest of three, Zach was usually happy to go with the flow. Heck, he had two attentive older brothers, three dogs, and a kitten. There was always lots of excitement and distraction. Hardly ever a reason to stay upset about anything. Except for C-A-N-D-Y. When Zach was two and a half, he was old enough to go trick-or-treating with the big kids on Halloween. Sure, last year he rode on his mum's shoulders dressed as a Dalmatian to match his dog, who was also dressed as a Dalmatian with painted-on spots. But that didn't count. This was real. He had a bag full of sweets collected through his own efforts. He was shocked the next day to learn that there were restrictions attached. I explained that while candy is delicious, it isn't good for your body if you eat too much at a time. The boys agreed that two pieces a day would be reasonable, three if they were small. We put the bags in the cabinet above the refrigerator so they wouldn't be tempting and they'd be out of reach of the dogs. Zach agreed with this protocol in theory but it turned out that a day was longer than he had thought. Whenever the word candy was mentioned, and it was mentioned a lot after Halloween, Zach got a powerful urge to have that candy in his mouth, even if he had already consumed the agreed-upon amount. When crying didn't work, he upped his game to kicking and screaming. Accepting feelings didn't seem to make a dent. Neither did giving in fantasy. It would be nice to have a mother who wasn't so fussy about food. One of those nice moms who gives you candy for lunch and isn't all, 
Oh, dear, I must make sure my children are so healthy, said in a syrupy voice. Brotherly offers of alternative food simply increased his rage. I turned my attention to getting lunch for the other boys. Zack eventually wailed himself out and joined us. Later, I took the older boys aside and asked them not to talk about candy in front of Zack. If they needed to say it, they could spell it. The allure of sugar is powerful. Even the thought of it was too much for a two-year-old to handle. I thought my solution was brilliant. Zack didn't have any more meltdowns, and the older boys used spelling to avoid setting him off. About a week later, I had a friend visiting, and Zack asked her, Do you have any C-A-N-D-Y you could share with me? My friend was astonished. He can spell? That is the most brilliant two-year-old I've ever seen. Turns out Zack was paying attention. It didn't take him long to crack the code when something as important as candy was at stake. But I also realized that he had not thrown another candy tantrum in spite of the fact that he was not fooled by our spelling. He had tested the limit and found it firm. Sometimes when a kid really wants something and can't get it, he is going to cry and scream. It doesn't necessarily mean we're doing the wrong thing. The unenviable job of a parent is to stand your ground when the health and safety of your child is at stake, even in the face of a hurricane of emotion that only a toddler can produce. Reminder. Troubleshooting. Number one. When a child is too upset to cooperate, go back to acknowledging feelings. You don't even want to think about visiting your friend another time. You were looking forward to going today. Make sure your tone of voice matches the emotion. That's so disappointing. Try a grunt instead of words. Ugh. Mmph. Put your child's thoughts into words. Stupid Legos. They should stick together and stay together. Tell the story of what happened. You worked for a long time on that spaceship. You used blue bricks for the base and red bricks for the lights, and it was almost ready to launch. All it needed was the fins on the rockets. Number two, give your child time to recover and give yourself a break. I can see how sad you are. I'll be in the kitchen making dinner. Come join me when you're ready. Number three, help a child climb out of the pit of despair by acknowledging feelings, giving information, and offering choices. Oh no, the skin got ripped. That hurts. Good thing skin knows how to repair itself. It's getting busy right now growing more skin cells to cover that poor knee and make it as good as new. How many days do you think it will take? What kind of band-aid should we cover it with? Number four, take action and stick to your values. If you regularly cave in to whining and complaints, the tools won't work. You wish you could have candy for breakfast. I'm putting it out of sight. The choices are cereal or eggs. Number five, check on the basics.
Is your child lacking food or sleep or feeling overwhelmed? Is your child developmentally ready to do what you're expecting? The end? So, we're done here? Every child is now brushing his or her teeth without protest, treating younger siblings and small animals with the greatest gentleness and respect, eating a full portion of greens at every meal, neglecting to poke pennies or peanut butter into the DVD player, and sleeping angelically through the night without interruption? No. Ah, we didn't think so. You wouldn't want life to become boring. We hope that you found in our book a wealth of ideas that have helped you survive the daily challenges of life with kids and end the day feeling weary, yes, but more peaceful, connected, and joyful than before. Onward to new ages and stages, new challenges, new questions and stories. And who knows? Maybe we'll go ahead and write another book about that. We want to hear from you. Please share your stories, your triumphs and calamities, your questions and observations. We can be reached at info at howtotalksolittlekidswilllisten.com or at our website, howtotalksolittlekidswilllisten.com. It is our hope to create a community of adults who share ideas and support each other in our most important task, raising the next generation. Joanna and Julie. How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, a survival guide to life with children ages 2 to 7, was written by Joanna Faber and Julie King and read by Michelle Pauk and January Lavoie with Gibson Fraser, Molly Pope, Rebecca Ross, Heather Alicia Sims, and Candace Thaxton. It was recorded by Peter Babinski and Terry Hogan. Editing and post-production by Glynn Corporated. Terry Hogan was the mix engineer. The associate producer was Taryn Ako and Tiffany Ferrari. How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen was produced and directed by Michael Noble. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen is available in print from Scribner. Also available from Simon & Schuster Audio, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, written by Adele Faber and Elaine Maislish, and read by Susan Bennett.